Good morning, everyone. I uh, don't know most of you, but uh, it's good to be here. It's a beautiful day today. Um, you see a little bit more sunshine down here than where I come from, northwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, we live close enough to Lake Erie that um, lots of water evaporates up off the lake and blows right over top of us in the form of clouds. We have a lot of rain, and so in the wintertime we have a lot of snow. You can ask James about, he'll tell you about weather up in northwestern PA. He's, he's been up there years ago. This morning I'd like to look at the first chapter of First Peter, First Peter chapter 1. When I speak on a passage, there's always a question of whether I read the whole passage in the beginning or whether we read it throughout the message or whether we don't read it at all and just let you look at it. Um, I think this morning I'm going to read the whole passage in the beginning so we get sort of the overview. So pay attention, try to notice in general outline your what we're looking at in this chapter will come in a little closer. So right now we're sort of, if you have a maps program and you you punch in the destination, we're kind of scrolling out where you can see the beginning of your route and you can see how it goes and you can see where it ends. We're kind of taking that overview and then as we come back, we will get to where it says uh, take a right in three-tenths of a mile or wh whatever the next. We're going to see the, the pieces. But as we look at those, I hope we can remember what it looked like when we were zoomed out. Both views are actually very important when you're studying scripture because if you don't understand the cohesive story of the, of the Word of God, the the fall of man, the dispersion of nations at the Tower of Babel, the gathering back together in one family of faith in, the, in, in Abraham and his feet and then through Jesus Christ and God's work in the church today and then the glorious consummation of history and the gathering back together of all things in Christ as one storyline, you can really actually get lost in a lot of the really good precious promises we have, I will never leave you nor forsake thee, in your common life. But those promises should be tied to this, this grand story that God is telling us. So hopefully we can we can look at both of those in this chapter here. So I'll read this in, I have ESV here, English Standard Version. It might be different if you have King James, but you follow along. Um, both are very good translations, faithful to the text. Peter, an apostle, uh, just to remind you, First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit and from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding work of God, word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The big picture view here, the destination and the route that we're looking at, is found briefly in, in verse 1, where he says, elect exiles, or King James says, um, to those who are scattered abroad throughout, basically this is Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, if you look at the map. And then the King James puts the word elect in the, in the verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So these are elect exiles. These are people who were dispersed. 
these people were, um, it was interesting, we were looking at the book of Acts. If you look at Acts chapter 8, we don't have to turn there, but it says that Stephen was persecuted. Um, he was stoned, and there arose a very harsh persecution in Jerusalem at that time. And around that time, they were dispersed into Judea and Samaria. That's not Asia Minor yet, but that's getting outside of Jerusalem. That's moving out. And then later in Acts chapter 12, it says that the disciples who moved in that, who began in that, in that travel, they, they ended up going up into other areas in Asia Minor, beginning to be up around Antioch. Um, I should actually look at the verse. It, it actually details the, the movement of, of God's people out of Jerusalem. And then Acts chapter 13 talks about the church that forms in Antioch. And the church in Antioch, interestingly, is, is the, sort of the missionary hub of the church going into Asia. So, actually, Acts 11, verse 19, it says, They went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So they, they travel around, they spread around. Just a side note here, sometimes we hear that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and we kind of we kind of um, make a hero of Paul because he was the one that was bold enough to travel, and and he didn't stay home where it was comfortable. He got out and and traveled. Well, yes, I want to make a hero of Paul. He did a great work, but I also want to notice that in those days, the most dangerous place to be a Christian was in Jerusalem. It was in the center of Judaism. And it was right in that center, right in that hub, right close to the temple, where Peter and James and John, they, they held the center of the church amidst tremendous persecution. And that was where Jesus wanted them to be. So yes, let's spread out. Let's not stay comfortably at home. But let's, um, let's notice that's not what the church was doing. Um, as, you, as you move through the book of Acts, um, in your, I'm not sure where your quarterly is going. I didn't have one this morning, but um, you'll notice that there's this connection between the churches in Asia and the churches in Jerusalem going on, and I think that connection across those cultures and between all that distance was was part of the power of Christ spreading throughout the world, the known world at that time. Beautiful picture of a Christian harmony. So the big picture here is these people have been spread, most of them against their will, into other nations. They have lost their homeland. Okay, most of these people he's writing to are Jews. Not all of them, but most of them. And they're actually spread throughout these places that are foreign to them. So I'm, in, I'm entitling my message this morning, Faith in Exile. That's the, that's the big scope of what we're doing. Now let's move into a little closer view here. Um, there's a sort of a three-sectioned... Uh, I'll break this into three sections. So the first two verses describe the people that he is writing to and their situation. 
And then the second section from verses 3 through 12 describes the truth about our salvation, the truth about what Jesus Christ, what God the Father has done through Jesus Christ to those who are elect, to those who are chosen by God. This is what is real. This is what is true. Third section from 13 on to the end is then in light of this truth and in light of the audience. So what are the elect people who are scattered abroad into all these countries? What are they supposed to do with, with this reality of what is true about their salvation and how are they supposed to live? That's the third section. Okay. No one told me how long to go here. 11 o'clock? 11.30? Okay, I'll, you can start waving at me, okay? Honestly. Um, sometimes I can't focus on the word and my, my watch at the same time, and you weren't um, magnanimous enough to hang a big block at the back. I'll try not to keep you too long, but this is a very important message today, today for the church. Um, I don't know if you're aware that the 20th century is the bloodiest century in the history of the church. Okay, so according to the best scholars and historians, the church of Jesus Christ lost, in terms of martyrdom, um, death, or the faith, about two-thirds of the amount of people between Jesus' resurrection and the year two, uh, the year 1900, of what it had lost between the year 1900 and 2000. Okay. I didn't look the figures up this morning, but I have them at home. And the Church of Christ is advancing in the world. It is really advancing today. Okay, you also hear figures that Islam is advancing. And that's true. I think Islam, is it in America, I believe, is the fastest growing religion. And yet in the world, Christianity is overtaking Islam. We are on the winning side. Now, even if we were on the losing side, we would be faithful. It is true. And there's, I don't know how to think about prophecy, but Jesus talks about a time of great falling away, so it could be that it will dwindle down again. My point there is that um, the church has seen tremendous trials over the last hundred years. And what we experience in America, this freedom that we have, is not reality for most of the church this morning, for most people that are gathering. So this message today is very, very important for the whole Church of Christ and for us um, as believers, people who are living among the nations. The word, uh, the word uh, exiles, or the word dispersion, excuse me, um, I believe the King James says scattered abroad. The Greek word is diaspora. And Part of that word is the word spore, um, which means a seed. So scattered abroad, it's like taking seeds and flinging them abroad. So these Christians were scattered abroad, and the Roman Empire was just was throwing seeds, was casting seeds into Asia Minor. 
and then the seeds just all sprouted and took root. So dispersion among God's people is not a bad thing if they remain faithful to God. But these people have lost their homeland. They're in distress. They're still living in, in, in the distress of, of life. <clears throat> Peter says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. In verse 2. The word there is, is like the word prognosis. The word foreknowledge in Greek is literally prognosis. Um, and I'm, I don't like translating directly into English because prognosis has, has gotten a little different meaning in English than it did in Greek. So words change in meaning to be absolutely precise. But God knows ahead of time. He prognosticates what he wants to do. He chooses people to accomplish his will. He fills them. He gives them what they need. And this is what he did to these people who were dispersed. The dispersion is not an accident. It didn't happen accidentally. Now I want to say that God doesn't author evil, does he? Does God want evil to happen? Does God want someone to, to drive off the road with a with a car and and mow through the middle of this group? Does God want that to happen? No. Those are effects of evil. Those are effects of sin. And yet God has a plan and in the midst of evil, in the midst of calamity, God has chosen, to his foreknowledge, ways of glorifying himself and growing his kingdom through those who are faithful to him. So, we're elect. We are chosen by God according to this foreknowledge. I want to carefully say here, because of various doctrines of election which have been overemphasized, we tend to shy away from the word. It's a biblical word. Let's let's not let's not give the word over. Let's not give it up. People who define it wrongly. Let's keep the term. Let's keep it. It's biblical. But we are chosen, it says, through his foreknowledge. Um by sanctification of the Spirit to obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Sanctification of the Spirit, it is a Holy Spirit, and so the Holy Spirit makes us holy. I think sometimes people define the Holy Spirit as a source of joy, as a source of passion, as a source of maybe movement. But more than that, he's the Holy Spirit. Yes, he has joy and movement and passion, but he is the Holy Spirit of God. And he moves us as we, as he fills us, he moves us to obedience to Jesus Christ. We are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And here Christ's atonement pays for our salvation. He brings us to the Father. Uh, we are sons of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's another reference in Scripture. It's also, accidentally at least, it's chapter 1, verse 3 of a book in Scripture where it also says, Blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can think of where that might be. The same phrase. I'll let you maul on that a bit, and then I'll come back to that. So, um, blessed be this Father. Peter is rejoicing in who this God is. You cannot... Yes, Daryl? Okay. You cannot get to the bottom of who this amazing God is. This God, this Father, who has chosen us in Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has begotten us again to a living hope, or lively hope, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God came up with this plan. Early in church history, there was a man who taught that God was angry and full of wrath, and that Jesus came along to save us from God's wrath. And God remains angry and dissatisfied, but Jesus, we can, we can love Jesus, we can have Jesus, and he delivers us. He's a kind, loving Savior. By the way, the church rejected him as a heretic and excommunicated him. Um... God himself has mercy. God himself has love. And he sent Christ according to his plan. So, has someone thought of that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the riches of his grace. Um, Ephesians chapter 1. It's interesting they have the same phrase, and it speaks about the Father, it speaks about the choosing and about the mercy. Um, Being chosen in Christ. And our living hope is based on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Our hope isn't based on a promise of words. It's not based on a <clears throat> just words that are written down by prophets. It's based on a historical event that happened. The incarnation of Christ and his raising from the dead. Different places Peter a different place Peter says of these things we were eyewitnesses. We saw him on the Holy Mount. We saw these things. The men who surrounded Jesus Christ saw these things. Their lives were changed. They bore testimony to these things. Hundreds of people testified to them. They saw them. This is established history. God is not calling us to believe in something fictitious. He's calling us to believe in something real, something that happens, something that's alive. It's it's happening today. So, a father, what does a father do? A father begets children. A father has children and he raises them to maturity. We wouldn't think much of a father who just had children, abandoned them. He might be a dad, but he's not a father. God begets us and he brings us to maturity. He brings us with this living hope. In the midst of this dispersion, we have hope. And we'll see that word later on 
um, I believe it's in 13, where he says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you. So hope is an important element here. So through this resurrection, we're born again, and we have hope. And what, where are we headed? What's the destination here? Here's the destination, he says, to an in, in chapter, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, or un, incorruptible, undefiled, and fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And that word reserved in heaven means it's just kept. God is preserving this. So it's like in God's vault or his lockbox. This, this is safe from any kind of tampering. It's not going to fade. It's not going to spoil. And nobody can steal it. Nobody can take it away. Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. Paul tells us, if you are dead and your life hid with Christ in God, then seek those things which are above. Set your affection on those things. That is where your treasure is. So, then it says, they're kept in heaven for you who by God's power are kept through faith or guarded by faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you're also being kept. This treasure is being kept and you're being kept. But the word changes a little bit. It's a little bit of a different word. You're not kept in a lockbox. Sometimes I kind of wish I was. Of course, maybe we wouldn't really like that. Maybe I'm using my imagination too much here this morning. But we are not guarded in the same way that treasure is guarded. We're in circulation with evil. We're in circulation with trouble. We're kept in the way that um, people are kept who are on a journey. There's robbers along the way. There's thorns along the way. There's rivers. You've got to you've got to go through the river. There's mountains. You might lose. You might get thirsty on the mountaintop. But God is there to supply. God is there to protect us as we go. And yet we face these challenges. We face these very real dangers. But by God's power, we're kept. His power is always going to keep us. It's not going to let us go. It's not going to allow those those um, bandits and those, uh, those dangers of the journey to take us off course. Except it says we're kept by God's power, but it's through faith. Okay? Faith is staying on the trail. We're not kept by the power of our faith. Our faith isn't what keeps us. My faith isn't strong enough. I need God. God's power is what keeps us. But faith, my faith, is staying on the trail and not getting off off trail. If we do, we're outside of the power of God. We can step outside of that. Not that he doesn't have power, but he chooses to give us freedom in that case. We can choose and then we can fall to those dangers. So we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The word there is apocalypsis. Revealed. God is ready to reveal this salvation in the last time. It's not really clear right now in the world how the world is going to end up. Christianity has its answer. We have our answer, which is true. Science and other religions give lots of other answers. 
um, just kind of a human humanistic point of view, a fatalistic point of view, uh, gives other answers. So there's a lot of confusion today. It's not real clear yet who's the winner in all of this. When this salvation is revealed at the last time, it is going to be. And this is how we're being kept. We're being kept through faith and salvation all the way until it's made completely and abundantly clear God is on the throne. He's in charge, and he's going to make all wrongs right in that time. The Philippians tells us that every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's going to be no one who denies that reality at that time. Our faith right now, faith for us right now, the definition of faith is to live in accordance with reality. There are other good definitions. That is reality, and that will be revealed. The reality of salvation. So in this you rejoice. You rejoice in this salvation, this great salvation, though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials, so that the test and genuineness of your faith, or the King James says, the trial of your faith, though it be tried by fire, um, might be found to the praise and honor and glory of him. Okay, so we are joyful. We know the end. We know how it's going to turn out. That word apocalypsis there, there's actually a book in the Bible by the same name. Um, it begins like this. It says, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how the book begins. We actually know the end. We believe the end. The challenge is that in our, in our daily lives, other people, other institutions have control over our lives that testify strongly against that reality. Political power takes you away from your home and sends you away. Or it, it, it just, someone destroys something important in your life. Or a family member passes away. And these kinds of, of difficulties, we can receive strong, strong ideas, strong testimony against God's salvation that God is on the throne, that he is in control. And yet we know the answer in the book of Revelation. We know what will happen. So Peter says, even though you are in the midst of these difficulties and calamities, you see the end of your faith, and that gives you joy. That gives you abundant joy. That word trial, the trial of your faith, test of genuineness, um, is actually a word, it can mean a trial like the purification of silver, but more exactly, it actually means the genuineness of silver. So the emperor would have his image stamped on a coin. There was a reason for that. It was a genuine coin. It was issued by him. And that's what the word means, actually, that the genuineness of our faith, when people see us, living in accordance with this reality, they say, you know what? That's actually real. Like, God is actually alive. This is actually real. 
when they come into contact with these people, our faith is like a currency. Jesus says in the parable of the uh, talents, he said that we're given a certain amount that we're supposed to invest and gain back for Jesus, for God. And this, this faith that we have is genuine. It's tested by these trials. And it's in the testing of these tri- by these trials that the image really, really, really gets clear. Okay? Trials are not joyful things. They're hard. But it's in the midst of these things that it's the polishing of that surface. And the image of the, of the man that minted the coin, Jesus Christ, the image of Jesus becomes much clearer and much more uh, resplendent in glory to all those who are seeing it. And this is actually what he goes on to say. You have not seen him yet, so we haven't seen Jesus, but you love him. Why? Because we have that image. We believe in him and rejoice with, there again, joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He wants to be sure we get the point. He keeps repeating the word glory in here. He says, praise and honor and glory. He wants to be absolutely sure we get the point that God's glory is going to be revealed. But then he says, as you believe him and love him, you actually obtain the outcome of your faith in verse 9, the salvation of your souls. This is a present salvation. So we talked about the salvation that's going to be revealed. We have a present salvation. We are not only waiting and enduring through the trials and hoping that the end will come when, when everything will be made plain. We're actually living it out today. It's reality today. In the midst of these trials, sometimes in the midst of trials, I found myself on a heart level. I found myself saying, yes, I believe in the atonement of Christ. I believe I'm saved. I believe that God is true. I believe all of these things. But I don't believe in his power to overcome this this present evil in my life. That's not faith. Sometimes I, I have realized on a heart level, I don't believe in God's power to overcome these trials. Yeah, I believe in his atonement. I believe I'm going to someday be saved out of this. Peter wants us to come to a higher level. He wants us to come to a present salvation that's real today. Maybe a little illustration here. So God gives us the book of Revelation. Have you ever seen a child on the day of his birthday? So he's, he, he sees this. Maybe he knows about it, this little wrapped gift somewhere. He smells the cake baking. And you say, are you having a good day? Yes, I'm having a good day. Well, why? It's my birthday. Tonight we're going to have my birthday party and we're going to have cake. Well, I'm going to say the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that's the cake baking. We can smell that. Okay, can you smell the cake? That's a, that's a simplistic view, but sometimes I've lost that. I've lost that smell. I've I've wandered away. I've forgotten about that. He goes on and says in verse ten, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about this searched and inquired diligently. 
He wants us to know that people before us have walked the same pathway. We're not the first people who came this way. Um, Hebrews 11 says, look at history. Consider the people of faith. And then in verse in chapter 12, he says, um, considering that we have such a cloud of witnesses, let's look to Jesus and walk with patience the race that is set before us. If you flip probably one page in your Bible, back to James 5, verse 10, he says, Consider, my brethren, the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. So these prophets inquired diligently and searched, and they were aware at the time that it wasn't going to happen in their day. They knew it was in the future. They didn't know when, but they searched diligently. So these were things that that have now been announced to us, and things which are mysterious enough that the angels, in fact, long to understand these things or look into these things that are happening. So God God is doing something cosmic in scope. He's doing something worldwide in scope. It's not just you in your present situation. It's not just you in... Um, yesterday we were saying Faulkner County. I'm not sure. Rockingham County? Is that where we are? Okay. So it's not just Rockingham County. Virginia. What's happening here is is a piece of the puzzle that, that spans all ages of history and the entire work of God. It's an important thing, folks, um, what God is doing here today. The prophets prophesied about it, and it's becoming real today in our lives. It says they inquire diligently about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. There's a there's a, a a pattern there, which it comes out again and again. There's three or four places in the book of of First Peter, where sufferings and then glory, suffering and then glory, suffering and then glory. It's this sequence that comes out in the life of Christ. It's other in other scriptures too, but especially in this book, and. Uh, <clears throat> A lot of the secular promises, uh, the political promises of our world promise glory, but they don't have that suffering. There is not a Canaan without a Jordan River. So then he says, considering this truth, considering this reality of what God has done, prepare your minds for action, literally, and I like the King James here. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that will be brought to you at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That word appearing is the same word revelation, apocalypse. So he comes back to this and says, while you're in the midst of this, be sober-minded and hope on the grace that will be brought to you. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So there's essentially four commands here. The first is to hope. In light of this truth, hope. The second is do not be conformed to the former lusts in your ignorance or to your passions, but be holy. So be holy is the second command. The third one, he says, conduct yourself with fear. Or I think the King James says, let your conversation be with fear. So, 
Another thing that sometimes can happen with this reality that we have, we can create sort of a, um, I'm not sure if I would call it a condescending um, idealism, maybe where we feel like since we're, since we are God's people, we don't really have to deal with some of the issues of life. Other people are out there, they're messing around with politics, they're messing around with all these problems, but we're special. Well, yes, we're special, but we also deal with the problems of life. Political issues, they, they affect us. They push us around, okay? Peter is saying, conduct yourself in fear. Live in the fear of God. Don't exalt yourself. Fourth one, he says, love one another fervently. Um, so, girding up the loins of our minds, preparing for action. Uh, we don't meet these situations happenstance. Prepare for them. Meditate on the word. Give yourself to this reality. If you don't meditate on the realities of salvation, the realities of the work of God, of being kept by God's power and by his grace, and the paradox of trials actually being productive and good for us, if we don't meditate on those things, uh, we won't be prepared for trials. This is actually a military metaphor. Stir up your, the loins of your mind. This is like saying, fill your tank with gas and check your air pressure in your tires. Get your rig ready for action. Um, be ready for combat. Okay? As obedient children, then, um, and just reminding you here of, of verse 2 again, we're saying we are elect unto obedience to Christ. It's in obedience, actually, that God's power is displayed. I enjoy missions. I've read a lot about missions. I've followed missions. I've read a lot of missions literature, missiology. And I hope this isn't scandalous to you. I've read Protestant sources, Anabaptist sources, Catholic sources about missions, about what different people are saying about missions. And there's, there's interesting ebbs and flows in different ideas throughout the years, things that people learn and things that are popular. An interesting thing right now in missiology or missions is an emphasis on obedience to Christ. This is in Protestant literature. I find that very fascinating. But as people in Africa and Asia are coming to Christ, and as they are, are becoming the new missions capitals of the world, um, these churches are focusing on obedience. They're saying, we must obey Christ in daily life. We must follow him in daily life. And fortunately, they have, they have abandoned this construct where we, we have sort of a salvation on paper and then we can sort of do what we want. But obedience to Christ is the absolute bedrock of missions. The absolute bedrock of God's display of glory. Being holy. So, if God is our Father, then we will represent Him. We will actually have the characteristics of our Father. Uh, just as a son has, or daughter has, their, their parents' characteristics. 
Then he says, conduct yourselves with fear, knowing you are not, you were ransomed, you are not redeemed from the vain practices inherited from your fathers with perishable things such as silver or gold. Um, so, all of us um, have been redeemed from vanity, from futility. But not with silver and gold. It's not the means of worldly power. It's not the things that we look to to control our lives. We invest so much of our energy sometimes in controlling life, controlling the outcomes of things. But he says it's not in those things that you are redeemed. It is of the precious blood of Christ. Here again we have the sprinkling with his blood in verse 2. Like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but made manifest in the last time for your sake. So, just as we were foreknown, God knew ahead of time and planned ahead of time for us, so Christ also was foreknown. Then, having purified your souls by your obedience, so this is what obedience does for us. It purifies us for service. Um, Another passage here is um, the next chapter where he talks about uh, being built up a spiritual house um, a holy priesthood so holiness is a preparation for God's display of his honor and for service to God priests were sanctified not just so they could stay home and be sanctified they were sanctified so they could offer so they could serve And so then Peter says, in like manner, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, this is the the point of obedience, maybe not the only one, but a major point. And this, uh, in King James says, love of the brethren, the word is Philadelphia. Sincere brotherly love. Um, This is a verb form which is never really commanded. It doesn't really have a command form. It it could. The verb could have that form, but I don't think we're commanded with this verb. This is something that's supposed to happen naturally. A sincere brotherly love. As we obey Christ, this love is supposed to happen. This is the fellowship kind of love. It's Philadelphia. It's the kind of love that we feel in our hearts. It's the longing that we feel on a Sunday morning when we say, I I'm looking forward to going to church this week. Uh, <clears throat> to being with my brothers and sisters. The love that we feel when we're praying and singing songs or when we're with people, when we want to be with people. But then Peter says, he uses the other love. In the second word, he says the word agape. This is the command form now. Love one another earnestly or fervently from a pure heart. If we don't feel that love, it's it's supposed to flow naturally as we're obedient to God, but if it doesn't come, we we exercise that other love. The overcoming love, the love that loves in spite of. Since you have been born again, Again, he's reminding us we're born from the Father. And like Jesus says to us, um, he says, 
if you love the same way that the publicans and all of those people love, what what reward do you have? And then he says, be like your father. Peter's reminding us, be like your father. Since you've been born again, love one another. Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable to the living and abiding word of God. So we have a present salvation. The salvation of our souls. The word soul includes our whole life. It's not merely something spiritual that happens to us after resurrection. It actually includes our whole area of jurisdiction in our lives today. We have salvation in our lives, in our experience, in our homes. And this salvation is present. It's a, it's a current reality. Though the world does not see it because they don't read the book of Revelation. They don't have that expectation. Yet this uh, tested genuineness of faith, this um, image of God who stamped on ourselves his own image with the currency of our faith, we are the means of revelation of Jesus Christ today prior to God's re- Christ's returning. We also do not understand the fullness of this revelation. We don't, we don't get it. And many times in our experience, we, we fail. But today, we have a salvation. Today, on this very day, you are not defeated by the exile on earth, the loss of your homeland, or the trials that are like fire. You have a homeland. Your souls are born again by the Father. Now, can I talk a little bit about Mass? We have trials, don't we? At least a few. I'm not going to make any any applications. I think the Holy Spirit is quite capable of that without my help. I'm just going to say, brothers and sisters, let's remember our salvation. God bless you.